Hi, everyone. I'm Nathan Lustig, and welcome to Crossing Borders, where I interview entrepreneurs doing startups across borders and the people who support them, with a focus on companies that have some relationship to Latin America. My guest today is Guimar Vakasitic, an Argentine entrepreneur turned VC turned entrepreneur again. Guimar has a great story. It's really fun. Originally from Buenos Aires, Guimar went to the University of Chicago to study economics with the goal of being professor, but found it wasn't for him. We talk about how he started an open table for Argentina with some of his friends in Buenos Aires, which later got acquired. Why he decided to work for an Argentine startup studio and what it's like to travel every two to three weeks to different startup hubs around the world for two full years. And then how he parlayed that experience to becoming a partner at FJ Labs, a New York City-based venture capital fund and company builder. We also talk about how FJ Labs invests in an average of 75 companies per year from all over the world, advice he has to entrepreneurs for getting acquired, how to think about company building, why entrepreneurs should look at Latin American remote teams, and an inside look at their process of building a company from scratch in an emerging market like Brazil. I really enjoy how Guimar thinks about startups and building businesses, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey, Guimar. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being willing to do it. Hi, Nathan. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, it's good to reconnect after a few months. So where are you in the world today? So right now I'm sitting at my office in New York in the Flatiron District. Very nice. And you're from Argentina originally, right? Yes, I am. I'm from Buenos Aires. Nice. And when did you first leave Argentina? First time I left Argentina was for college. So I was born in Argentina, lived most of my life there. And then after high school, decided to study in the U.S. and moved to Chicago. Uh, I went to University of Chicago. So I was living and studying there for four years. Very cool. So what are you working on these days? So these days I'm working on a few different things. Most of my time, it's dedicated to a new company that I'm building that's still on self mode, which is an online marketplace based in New York. And then besides that, I'm also a venture partner at FJ Labs, which is a marketplace-focused VC here in New York. And I'm also uh, part of the board of a company I co-founded called Insacarro that's based in Sao Paulo in Brazil. Awesome. And so we'll dive into your business stuff in a little bit here, but I want to sort of go back to how does a guy from... Buenos Aires, end up in University of Chicago, and then starting these multinational companies and a fund based out of New York. Yeah, absolutely. So when I decided to stay in the US, I really didn't know what to expect pretty much. I, I didn't know how the systems worked in the US. I had never heard of the SATs until a couple of months before the application deadline. And it really just came about because my dad told me, you know, you should actually think about studying abroad. It would be an experience that would be very enriching. You would meet other people. You would have autonomy at a very young age. And that's something that seemed very interesting and motivating to me. So I just started doing some research, decided to actually move forward with a plan. And worst case, if I didn't like it, I could always go back to Buenos Aires where I had been accepted to a few local universities. So at that point, I knew I liked economics, so I decided to go to University of Chicago, which has the best economics program in the country, because my goal at the time was really to become a professor and you know keep studying economics until I get my PhD and so on and so forth. And then very soon after I got to Chicago, I realized that there were so many other people that were not only more motivated than I was to pursue economics in the long term, but also way smarter than I was. 
So at that point, I thought, look, econ is great. I liked it, but it's definitely not the career that I should pursue. And I started thinking just in business in general, you know, I've always been, you know, pretty business oriented. I've, I've liked, you know, trying to build things even when I was in high school, although most of them didn't work out. And I knew I wanted to pursue a career in business, but not necessarily in tech. So the way I got into tech was mainly through building my first company, which was a startup called Sena Plus, which was basically an online reservation platform for restaurants for Argentina. So you can think of it as an open table version for Argentina. So back in the day, when I was still in college, a couple of friends from high school gave me a call and they told me, hey, we're thinking about a few different ideas. Let's brainstorm and let's see if there's anything that we like and we can give it a try. And one of those ideas was was building this preservation platform for restaurants. So after a few weeks, you know, we decided to move forward, build a product and just get going. And this was towards the end of my studies in Chicago. So my last summer I spent in Buenos Aires just working on this new company. And then after I graduated, I also went back and kept working on it. Obviously, as you can imagine, you know, did every single mistake you can possibly do. And after a couple of years, we were able to, to sell the company to the link portal in Latin America called Restaurando, which was you know, a good way to close a chapter, even though it wasn't obviously any meaningful amount from a financial perspective. It was certainly a great way to just wrap up that experience. And thereafter, you know, my head has always been thinking about new companies that I could either invest in or I could build in. I think from then onwards, you know, it's just been, you know, trying different things and jumping from one place to the other until, you know, I got where I got. So that small acquisition to start is something that is pretty common in the US, but not very common in Latin America. My second company had an acquisition like that where it wasn't all that good from a financial perspective, but it still learned really a lot going through the process. How were you able to make that happen in Latin America where it's not nearly as common as it is in the States? So we were able to make that happen, I think mainly because we had, even though we were a tiny team, we had good talent and, you know, a few of our you know, employees, including our co-founders would go and work for the art company and just really appreciate that. And then the second factor was the fact that even though we were way smaller than them, and even though we had a way smaller budget, we were still a pain in the ass because the nature of that business, to some extent on the supply side is winner takes all, right? So if you're a reservation platform that has a relationship with a restaurant, that restaurant will only use one reservation platform and not multiple. So even from a sales perspective, even though we were only targeting small percentage of restaurants compared to what they were doing, we were still a pain in the ass. And I think from their perspective, just absorbing us and acquiring us for you know relatively small amount made a lot of sense. One of the biggest misconceptions that people have about small acquisitions like that when they talk to me about mine is that they sort of don't understand that you have to have a lot of connections with the acquirer for a long time before. So staying in contact, staying on top of the market. Did you have that same relationship with them or was it something that just came sort of out of the blue? We also had that relationship. In fact, one of the board members of a company it was somebody that I admired a lot and I continue to admire and, and keep in touch with. It's an entrepreneur called Santiago Bidinkis. And I remember the first time we... A few weeks after we initially launched our company, I just reached out to him out of the blue and I told him, hey, I'm building this online marketplace. I know you know a lot about marketplaces. would love to you know, get together and pick your brain and, and get some advice. And his response was, hey, 
love what you guys are doing. The only problem is I'm in the board of a company that does this exact same thing. <laughs> so we met, we had a conversation. It was you know, a nice conversation, but tense nonetheless. And then we kept in touch. And I think then we kept talking you know, every few months and just checking in and like, kept the pulse of like, how each company was doing. And then you know, when the time came, we did have that strong relationship with him, with the founders of Restaurando and the whole board. And I think that made the acquisition actually possible. And what advice would you give to entrepreneurs in general or specifically in Latin America about looking at maybe they've got a business that's growing slowly, but it's never going to be a 50 or $100 million business about working towards getting one of the smaller acquisitions to maybe get out and work on something else or even just to get a little bit of money off the table? So my perspective in general with entrepreneurs is that if you're really building something that you like, you should just keep pushing and keep trying to make that happen. Obviously, you know, the saying that building a small company is as hard as building a large company is absolutely true. And that's true when you think about you new know, operations, building a product, building a brand, fundraising. Probably fundraising is even harder if you're not building a large enough business. So there's obviously a notion of, you know, you should stop working on what you're building because it will never be big. You should start thinking about bigger ideas. And I would always push for that as long as what they're building is not something that they're really passionate about. Because at the end of the day, you know, building any company is so hard and there are so many ups and downs on a daily basis that if you really like what you're building, you know, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter whether you're building, you know, a $10 million business or a $100 million business. There are plenty of lifestyle businesses that are great businesses for the founders and you might be able to, you know, just cash in a couple of million every single year and, and that's absolutely fine. And that's, you know, more than plenty to have an amazing lifestyle in Latin America. So if that's the case, I wouldn't try to persuade people to stop building what they were doing as long as they really like it. I think if people are looking at building companies from a more opportunistic perspective, I would certainly advise them to think twice whether they want to do that or not, because building any company or building anything that has meaningful value will take seven to 10 years. And if you're dedicating that big percentage of your life to doing that, you know, you might as well do something that's either impactful or something that you like. Ultimately, the way I see this, I think it's kind of like a, it's a threefold analysis, right? You, know, you should be actually doing, you should be doing something that one, you really like, two, something that you're really good at building and have a competitive advantage. And then lastly, building something that people care about or something which is impactful. And I think if you find a business or a company or any type of project that has those three components, you know, it's definitely worth you know pursuing the long term. Just going back to your question, one thing that I didn't answer is what are my thoughts about taking some money off the table? My recommendation for that would be you should definitely think about doing that regardless of whether you are in the US or in Latin America. One of the things that I've seen on both sides of the table as entrepreneurs and investors is that it's never too early to sell. Obviously, you don't want to be selling at very early stages. You don't want to be selling at, at a seed or Series A. If you've been working on a company for a few years, if it's a bootstrap company, or if you're at a point where you've raised money and you're a Series B company or Series C onwards, then it totally makes sense to think about just cashing out a little bit, de-risking your you know five to ten year block, and making sure that that you are able to get some financial gain and then keep moving. You know, I've been part of a few board and investor in a bunch of companies, and I've always been supportive of founders that have been working on a specific company for a few years, and you know, it actually makes sense for them to take some cash out of the table. What I've also seen is founders trying to be too greedy with secondaries and not wanting to sell, and then things at the end of the day not working out and, and regretting that decision. I think an entrepreneur should always consider selling a small percentage of, of their stake. You shouldn't be selling you know, more than probably 15%, because if you sell more than that, you're just giving 
a negative signal to the entire company and the board and showing that you don't believe so strongly that the value of the company will continue to increase. But as long as it's a small percentage, that small percentage can actually represent a meaningful amount of an entrepreneur's net worth. And so it totally makes sense to consider that. Yeah, I think that's right, especially for entrepreneurs that have been struggling at it for, you know, three to five years that maybe don't have much in assets outside of the company. Because from what I've seen from some of our companies is that entrepreneurs that don't have much money off the table or not related to the business tend to make decisions way too short term. And so getting them a little bit of cash off the table so they can make a decision from 30,000 feet rather than what's going to happen at the next block, I think is a good deal. Absolutely. So what did you do after you had your acquisition? What was the next step? So after the next step, the board members of the company that acquired my company were building a startup studio. So a startup studio based in Buenos Aires called uh, Quasar Ventures. And the idea was to build a couple of companies per year. And after acquisition, when I went back to Argentina after I graduated from college, I talked with them and they told me, you should join Quasar from the very beginning, and then I pretty much helped them structure some of the initial processes of recruiting entrepreneurs, thinking through ideas, having a framework in terms of evaluate business ideas for Latin America. And then I was also thinking about potentially building something that you know, they didn't materialize into any meaningful, so I was more on the operational side of the startup studio. So I was there for a couple of years working directly with the founding partners and helping them build a few companies out of there. So a startup studio is always an attractive model, and there's been some success cases, but I think a lot more failures. What advice would you give to people that are thinking about doing a startup studio? So the advice I always give when people are thinking about doing that is you shouldn't do that unless you're a successful entrepreneur. And we'll get more into FJ Labs and the model that FJ Labs has because FJ Labs is a dual VC and startup studio. So we also have that component of building companies you know, every year. But way too often I see people who are trying to build a startup studio when they haven't built anything before, right? So the startup studio model is typically one that takes a relatively large percentage of equity of the company. And if you're going to be doing that, you need to have, the expertise to add value to a specific company. Otherwise, there's no way that you'll be able to attract good talent. If you just think about this from the other perspective, if you're a really good entrepreneur and somebody with the right credentials and right operational experience, why would you give to a startup studio double-digit equity when that person really doesn't have more experience than what you have when it comes to building online companies? So I think that's the number one advice. I think most of the people that I come across are trying to build startup studios without having had successful experiences before. So my experience would be try to go out there as an operator, as an entrepreneur, try building a massive company and building something of meaningful value. And once you've done that, then building a startup studio is an amazing way to diversify, be involved in a bunch of projects at the same time and empower multiple entrepreneurs at the same time. I think building the right startup studio with the right incentives, with the right structure for the founders and their startup studio is an amazing model and a model that's super value creating. I just don't think it's for everybody. I think that's right. I think that is kind of the dividing line between most of the startup studios that I've seen and the ones being successful and ones not are having operators who've done it before. Yeah, and I think that also applies to incubators because to some extent, you know, you need to have, again, 
experience of building successful companies to be able to advise other people. If you have never done it and you don't know what happens if you do A or B or C, then it's really hard for you to advise or to advise properly in such a way that most of the companies that are graduating from your accelerator or incubator actually become successful down the line. I think what I've seen, again, this isn't only about Latin America issue. This happens everywhere. By Again, I see way too often people who are building accelerators that have no idea about raising money or what metrics the companies need to raise money. And they just do intelligent guesses and try to advise companies like that. But at the end of the day, you need some type of deeper knowledge to really make a difference in a startup's life, right? Like when you're at such an early stage and you're only in an incubator for or an accelerator for a few months, you know, there's so many things going on. There are so many hypotheses that you want to test. There are so many things that you need to validate that if the people from the accelerator or the incubator don't give you really strong and well-defined guidance, probably you'll go through those few months without getting any meaningful value from it, right? So I think ultimately my recommendation would be, you know, for entrepreneurs, if you're thinking about an accelerator or incubator or startup studio, it needs to be one that's being led by former successful entrepreneurs or investors and vice versa. If you're thinking about building one of these things, you know, I would encourage not to do that. First, go out, build a company or two. And if you've done it successfully to some degree, then start advising people. Yeah, I think that's good advice. So after working with the startup studio, what was your next step? Where did you go after that? So after that, I spent a couple of years just roaming around the world. And that was a time when I started working as an investor. So to give you a little bit more context, I had made the decision to come back to the U.S. around August, September 2013. And I knew that I had had some operational experience before. I had been kind of in the middle of building a company and investing with a startup studio, I wanted to have an experience on the other side of the table. And when I started looking for different funds that I could join in the US, you know, it was really hard for me to find a fund that had a really good personal fit. Not only good personal fit, but also a really good fit with my skill set. Right, like everything that I had been doing so far was around online marketplaces and consumer-facing companies, and mainly in Latin America, not in the U.S. And most of the funds in the U.S. weren't investing in Latin America, or if they were, it was a very small percentage of their deal flow or, or overall investments. So I talked to a few funds. You know, I struggled to find one that was the right one for me. And at that time, I got introduced to a couple of angel investors by coincidence, to Fabrice Grinda and Jose Marin. I didn't know them personally, but I had obviously heard a lot about them. So Jose was had been one of the co-founders of Derramate, which is an eBay for Latin America, eventually ended up merging with Mercado Libre, and it's right now one of the largest publicly traded companies, not only from Latin America, but on the Nasdaq. And Fabrice Grinda was you know, the co-founder and co-CEO of OLX, which is an online classified for the rest of the world, mainly emerging countries, very big in Argentina. They had their largest office in Buenos Aires, so pretty influential investors and entrepreneurs within the Argentine ecosystem. And they had been investing personally just with their own capital for a few years. And they were doing this in a very informal way. And I thought that firstly, you could learn a lot from them. And then secondly, their approach of investing was a perfect fit both with my skill set and what I was looking for. Because they invested mainly in online marketplaces, but they invested both in the US and in emerging markets. I think 
because of that, the skill set and the knowledge I had was actually way more valuable for them. So at the time, I started advising them and working with them directly, but we didn't have any formal structure because they literally were investing out of their you know, personal homes. You know, they were traveling a lot. So what I decided to do was just build a schedule where I would travel across the globe and stop a couple of weeks at a time on different tech hubs. So I would be able to meet with the local tech scene, meet with other investors, meet with entrepreneurs, and be able to build you know, a significant amount of deal flow by doing so. So that's what I did next. For almost two years, I traveled around a few countries, mainly Germany, the UK, the US, Mexico, Dominican Republic, Brazil, Argentina, and a few others. And what I did is you know, I traveled two or three weeks at a time, stayed on an Airbnb, and then just built out a routine in each one of these countries. And what was interesting is that I built my schedule in such a way that I would go back to every single one of those countries, or more specifically, every one of those cities every few months. So if I was in London for two or three weeks, then I would go back to London four or five months after. And at that point, I would be able to reconnect with people that I had met. I had a social life in all of these cities because of, because of my friends from college and friends from life in general. So I was able to get that benefit of being able to be everywhere and nowhere at the same time, building these relationships with other funds and with entrepreneurs, and at the same time, just you know having the benefits of having a social life wherever I want. And then I did that for a couple of years. And after that, when things started to scale up, we decided to formalize the investment efforts. And that's when you know we built FJ Labs, we raised money from third-party capital, and then pretty much the rest is history. And so I'll jump into FJ Labs deeper in a minute, but I want to go back to your travel schedule. So did you have a set schedule that every X amount of time you'd move and it was the same schedule all the time? Or did you try to say, you know what, I'll be back in the UK four months later, but it doesn't really matter where I go in between? So I had my itinerary and I knew pretty much what the next few steps, the next few stops were going to be. But I wasn't really strict with deadlines, meaning that if I went to Berlin and I didn't see enough deal flow or didn't see enough interesting things going on in Berlin, I would leave after two weeks. If I was seeing a lot of really interesting things, I would stay for three or four weeks. And obviously that would delay or not uh, the entire schedule. So it wasn't really fixed, but as a consequence, you know, I just kept coming back to these places every few months. And what's it like to actually live a lifestyle like that for, you said, two years or so? Yeah. I really liked it. I think it's definitely not for everybody. And there were, I did get a lot of weird looks when I told people about my lifestyle or my schedule. But I think it's a great thing to do when you're young. One of the things which was really interesting was that it really changed my perspective when it comes to ownership in general, in life. You know, obviously, because I didn't have an apartment, I was traveling a lot. I didn't want to travel with many bags. So what I had was pretty much I had one suitcase, one carry-on, and my backpack. And in those things, I had to have formal clothes, summer clothes, winter clothes, swimming suits, you name it, and every other item that I might need during that two-year journey. And to some extent, when you start doing that, you start realizing that when you have an apartment, and I have an apartment right now, like to some extent, apartments and houses just anchor you to where you are. And even though that's great and that gives you stability, you start buying things that you really don't need. So during that time, I really didn't buy anything 
unless it was extremely necessary. So if I really needed to buy something, and obviously just like besides basic toiletries and clothing, you know, I wouldn't buy it. And now that you know I've gone back to more normal lifestyle for the last you know few years, I've realized that at the beginning I was still very strict when it came to not purchasing any material good that wasn't extremely necessary. And after a couple of years, you know, I've realized that I've actually gone back to old bad habits of just buying any cool gadgets or product that they come across. And can you talk a little bit about how much it costs to do that? Because I think a lot of people have a misnomer of they think it's way, way, way more expensive to travel either for business like you were or just for fun, maybe taking a year or six months to travel around. They think it's way more expensive than it actually is. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I tried to stay mainly on Airbnbs because it felt more like home than just living in hotels. Again, it really depends on your budget, but at least the budget I had was, you know, I typically paid around almost $3,000 on a monthly basis on rent because obviously Airbnbs are more expensive than than if you have a long-term lease. But then again, it's not that different to the rent of what people pay for in New York or in San Francisco. So from that perspective, it wasn't more expensive than just living in one place. I need to take into account that what you should do is you should balance cities that are really expensive with cities that are not very expensive. So obviously going Back to Buenos Aires, that was very cheap. Going to other places in Latin America was very cheap. I spent some time in the Dominican Republic because Fabrice was there. So I used to go there also once in a while. So having those stops would really decrease the overall budget. But that was roughly how much I spent. It really varied, again, on a monthly basis, depending where I was. So a normal person with a decent job in New York or San Francisco or LA probably could if they wanted to. If they figured out a way to continue to make the same amount of money that they make now could pretty easily do the same lifestyle you did. No, oh, absolutely. I think you can actually do that with way less money. It's just things account that I was spending time in San Francisco, in New York, in London. Those cities are really expensive. If you want to have a more nomadic life, you can travel to Southeast Asia, to Latin America, to Eastern Europe, Africa, and living in those countries is way, way cheaper. So I think you can actually have a nomadic life with half of the amount that I was mentioning. You can actually spend you know, $1,000 on a monthly basis on rent that should be plenty to have a decent accommodation. Yeah, I was talking to another investor who has a schedule where he's in two places in the US and one place in Latin America each month. And he actually makes money when he's not in New York by Airbnb his New York place. And exactly. Basically breaks even when he has to live in New York. Yeah. And it'll be two years in August that I'll have been doing the Chile, Colombia, Mexico, California route. When I'm not in California, I make money every month. Yep, so absolutely. It works well. Can you talk a little bit about formalizing the fund and FJ Labs and that whole process and why you decided to be based in New York? We decided to base FJ Labs in New York mainly because we just like New York way more than what we like the Bay Area from a personal perspective. I love the Bay Area. I love going there. I still go there very often. But I think ultimately, you know, there's so much more to life than just tech. And every time I've been to the Bay Area, I've felt that conversations are very one-sided and people are just talking about tech. The seat in general, when it comes to social relationships, is very small. I think when you're living in New York, you know, you find yourself in an environment which is way more diverse. You meet amazing people that are doing completely different things. It's just more enriching in general. So I think that was, you know, <laughs> candidly, probably the number one factor. And I think besides that, we also thought that the New York ecosystem was thriving back then. 
you start to see amazing online marketplaces grow. And when you start analyzing even some of the you know slightly older marketplaces like Etsy and the likes, you know, you, you start to see you know billion dollar plus companies coming out of the New York ecosystem where there's you know way less competition. I think having said that, one of the things to take into account about MJ Labs is that we are very global on our investments. Invest around 70% of our investments are in the U.S., split between New York and the Bay Area, and then the rest uh, are investments outside the U.S. And we invest a lot in Europe, in Latin America, in emerging countries. We've invested in 25 countries around the world so far. That number keeps increasing. I think the process of formalizing FJ was you know, mainly led by personal circumstances. Now, Fabrice lives in New York. My girlfriend lives here in New York, and I wanted to just settle uh, in New York for some time. I think that that's why we decided to do it that way. And we certainly think about FJ as you know, a multi-decade fund, and hopefully, that hopefully has restructured to do that. So, twenty-five countries is probably more than if you summed up most of the funds in New York's investments <laughs> altogether. Why the focus outside of the U.S.? I think it's been mainly opportunistic. Obviously, you know, all of us travel a lot. But I think. We are very international and diverse as a firm. We obviously have Americans working at FJ, but if you just think about the different nationalities of people working at FJ, we have people from Spain, France, Norway, Netherlands, Russia, Canada, Argentina, of course. So it's very diverse from that perspective. I think that makes everybody at the firm open to making investments outside of the U.S., and not only that, for reasons I say, have been very successful investing as angel investors in startups outside of the U.S. before. There were early investors in Delivery Hero that's IPOing for $5 billion right now, and obviously you know, a bunch of other examples. And I think when you're able to pick the right companies in the emerging market or in ecosystems outside of the U.S., you're still able to get really good returns. And when you think about local ecosystems in Latin America or less developed tech hubs, there are really not that many sophisticated early stage investors. So that's certainly one thing that most of the good entrepreneurs look for. So whenever they are raising money, you know, we're among the first ones to learn about that and are just able to get a sneak peek into all these companies at a very early stage. But I think you know, we've enjoyed investing in, in startups outside the U.S. and will continue to do so. I think at the end of the day, you know, people in the U.S. or maybe in London get too panicked when the economies are not doing that well, but when you're investing in companies and you have you know a 10-year horizon, it really doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you know, if you're investing in Brazil and Brazil is going through a recession right now, hopefully in three or four or five years, you know the economy should be doing well again. And you should actually invest, obviously, in teams that you know are well prepared to manage those circumstances. And, and we can talk about like the challenges that certainly implies, but I think ultimately things end up working out. And what kind of companies, you talked, you said marketplace generally focused, but what kind of companies does FJ invest in? It's mainly marketplaces. Around 80% of the investments are online marketplaces. And that could be two-sided marketplaces, you know, three-sided marketplaces, B2B marketplaces, you know, B2B2C marketplaces, you name it. <laughs> there are marketplaces of all sorts, types, and colors. And from the other side of it, the company builder or the startup lab side, mm -hmm. What kind of companies is marketplaces as well? As well, yes. As well, marketplaces, because that's our expertise. That's been our focus. You know, we've probably seen so many companies become successful. So many of them fail. At the end of the day, when you're so entrenched inside this marketplace dynamics, you're able to you know, start to find out specific patterns that make the marketplace get to a point where it has liquidity and it actually gets the flywheel going. So both from a building perspective and SARP perspective, you know, we focus mainly on marketplaces, right? And to some extent, 
most of the founders that are looking for investment want to get investment from FJ because we're operators as well of all of the marketplaces that we're building on a yearly basis at FJ, all the businesses that we've built before. And obviously being operators make us be better investors. And obviously the more we invest, the better operators we become because you know we also start getting and gathering learnings from other companies that we help advise. How does that get split up? How many companies will you build per year versus how many will you invest in generally? On the building side, it's only one or two a year, just because we do have a very hands-on approach in the sense that we help build up the product, we help with hiring, we help with fundraising. So first year or so of the company, there's a lot of hours that we put into making those companies you know, get off the ground and become successful. So obviously there's a limited hours in the day and limited number of us that can do that. And then on the investing side, the approach that we take is one that we typically don't lead rounds. We write small checks relative to the size of the round, invest around $400,000 on average. So if it's you know, a Two or three million dollar round will invest, you know, three hundred thousand dollars or four hundred thousand dollars. If it's you know a ten million dollar Series A, we'll invest, you know, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars or a million dollars. So we're definitely not competitive with other funds that like to lead deals, and that has also you know given us the opportunity of you know getting into most of the deals that we like and just getting exposure to more investments. So on a yearly basis, while we only build one or two companies a year, we typically invest in seventy-five or so. And as of right now, you know the FJ portfolio has close to three hundred companies. That's a lot of companies. And how big is the team that manages that? So right now the team is around eight people. So there are. A few of those members are entrepreneurs in residence that help on the investing side and then on the side they're just thinking about their own ideas that, that they want to build. So the entire team is not fully dedicated to the investing side. And can you talk about a couple of the most sort of highlights of companies that you've invested in both in the US and abroad? The companies that we've invested in or yeah. companies that we have built? So start with investing and then we'll go to built right after. Yeah, absolutely. So companies that We've invested, talking about companies that we invested in the last four years, which are companies that I was involved with. We invested in a company called Boxed, which is an online retailer focused on selling CPG products on bulk. You can think of it as online Costco. The company has grown to, you know, raising you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, selling hundreds of millions of dollars on a yearly basis as well. And we've seen that company, you know, from the very beginning. And that has been, you know, an amazing example of growth. We've also invested, and that company is based in New York. Outside of the US, we've invested in a company called Eve, which is a direct-to-consumer mattress company that we invested in 2015. The company actually went public three months ago, so it's been an amazing ride going from pretty much pre-launch idea phase all the way to IPOing in 22 months. Obviously, that was an amazing example. Other companies that we've invested We've invested in a company called Chrono24, which is you know, a global online marketplace for used luxury watches, just enabling both customers and businesses resell their luxury watches to anybody across the globe. And, so those have been a few of the examples. Of and how about on the, the company builder side? What's one that you've been involved with on a deep level? So probably one that I've been the most involved with is a company called Insacarro, which is an online marketplace in Brazil, which I co-founded. I'm still part of the board of that company. And what the company does is pretty much buys cars from end consumers within one hour. And as we're inspecting the car, one of our inspection points, we're also simultaneously doing an online auction 
where we have thousands of dealers from all across Brazil bidding on that specific car. By the time we're done with the inspection of the car, we also have a firm offer from the dealers and we're able to purchase that car from you immediately. So it's really about providing customers a full experience that goes from beginning to end within 60 minutes. So that's a company that we co-founded on December 2015. The company has grown to almost 300 employees. It's grown to, as of right now, to a 60 million revenue run rate and growing very rapidly, you know, dozens of, of millions of dollars in funding for a company. That's an example of a company that you know just was created from scratch, from FJ Labs, you know, we came up with the idea together with the founders, you know, put a team together and then just kept executing. And can you take me through the process of coming up with deciding the one idea that you want to do in a year and then picking the team and getting it off the ground? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a program that we call the apprentice program at FJ, where we typically get talent from the top business schools, mainly from HBS, Stanford and Columbia. And we get first-year students to work with us during the summer. During the summer, they spend half of the summer on the investing side and half of the summer working as an operator in one of the companies that we have built. So they can actually have operational experience. Then during their second year, they typically work with us on a part-time basis, work around 20, 25 hours a week during their first semester, mainly on the investing side. We want to teach them how to be good venture investors. We give them the right tools, the right framework. They understand what works, what doesn't. So that's definitely you know, a six-month crash course of how investors think about investing and thinking about all the different ways of building the architecture of a marketplace. And then during their second semester, before they graduate from business school, they start thinking about different ideas that we want to build together. And the brainstorming process is one which is very collaborative between the entrepreneurs and us. And what we do is we keep iterating ideas that are in, you know, on the backs of our minds. And then once there's something that we like, we just do a deep dive and we spend a few weeks talking with customers, trying to understand the problem. Oftentimes we build MVPs or we build landing pages and we try to get a good grasp of how the unit economics would play out. And after doing two or three months of work, we decide whether we want to pull the trigger and move forward or not. And if the answer is yes, then we go out and build it. If the answer is no, then we go back to score one, start the process again, and we repeat that until we actually find something that we like. I think the interesting thing about our model is that there is no specific deadline to do this, and it's taken some you know, EIRs only a couple of months to find an idea that they really liked, and it has taken other EIRs over a year until they found an idea that they really liked. Ultimately, for us, it's really about partnering with the right people. By the time we build a company together, we've been working together for at least a year, so we really know these entrepreneurs. They know us. They know the value that, that FJ Labs can add to a company. We know whether they are good operators, good executors. And so there's really no need to put pressure on them regarding you know, a specific deadline. We just want to be more creative and think about ideas that matter the most. And how come you decided Brazil rather than, say, Mexico or the U.S. or somewhere in Europe? So when building in Sacarro, we thought that Brazil was a very underserved market. Europe was already taken by a few other players. And when you think about Brazil, you know, Brazil is a very informal economy, very inefficient market. There is no reliable pricing for cars. It's you know the fourth or fifth 
largest used car economy in the world. It's around $89 billion on a yearly basis. We had built companies in Brazil before. Obviously, company that Jose built, the Ramate operates in Brazil. He, before he signed FJ, he also co-founded a few companies in Brazil with a startup studio model. A few of those, you know, scaled a lot. Fabrice had experience with OLX in Brazil. So to some extent, Brazil has always been our backyard and we know how to get good talent in Brazil. We know how things operate down there. And it's obviously by far the largest market. I think one of the challenges that maybe entrepreneurs in Latin America and other countries have is that when you're talking with U.S. investors, for a U.S. investor, you know, you should either be in Brazil because it's a massive market, or if you're elsewhere, you should actually be building a product that can scale regionally very fast or a product that's targeting, you know, customers everywhere beyond Latin America. Otherwise, it's really hard to make a case to make an investment. At the end of the day, the way venture works is that most of returns follow a power law dynamic. So if you really don't believe that an investment that you're doing can become a massive company, at the end of the day, it's not worth making the investment. So unfortunately, we've seen companies that we really liked in smaller countries. We've seen amazing companies in Uruguay, in Peru, in Chile. But at the end of the day, because the local operational nature of those companies, you know, we've decided not to pursue those investments because even if they were to become very big in those countries, it's still not big enough to justify the type of return that the traditional you know, venture investor is looking for. So what's it like operating a business in Brazil when your team is based in the U.S.? And you also have operations for that in Dominican Republic, right? Yeah. So for that company, then all of the operations are in Sao Paulo in Brazil. We have our entire tech team in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic, where we have around 35 engineers. So the way it worked is, you know, I was operational for the first couple of months where I went down to Sao Paulo, spent time there with the co-founders, and we're pretty much working together hand in hand, you know, just thinking about how to design the online marketplace, talking with customers, building the first initial products, recruiting the tech team, and then... Once we had all of those elements in place, you know, I just went back to New York and the other co-founders were the ones that actually took operations over and grew a company from that perspective. I think after that period, I was having, you know, probably engagements, you know, two or three times a week, helping with like every single aspect you can imagine from like online acquisition to fundraising to market to product and so on and so forth. But it was more as a very hands-on advisor role rather than a co-founder operational role. And what advice do you have to people thinking about doing a remote team for tech? So I think having remote teams works really well. It has worked really well for us. I actually have a remote team right now for a new company that I'm building that's based in Bogota in Colombia, where we have around 20 engineers. Remote tech teams work really well as long as you know how to manage them. And you need to have a very close relationship with the product manager. And the product manager needs to have some sort of or some degree of business acumen. So he or she knows how to lead the engineers and plan the sprints and so on and so forth. You know, a few things that I've learned during these last few years is that having a remote team in the same time zone is great. Having a remote team on a different time zone is way more challenging. And it's way more challenging because it's harder to communicate with people. You just need, you just need to wait you know, a few hours until you get replies from the team. And the other thing that I've also learned is that when you're thinking about remote teams, you should make a decision really thinking long-term. I mean, the, both decisions that we did 
willing Sakaro about building the tech team in Santo Domingo and with my new company building a tech team in Bogota, when we made those decisions, we had already found the right CTO, the right PM, and we wanted these people to be part of the company on a long-term basis. And we incorporated local subsidiaries in those countries. You know, we got an office with a long-term lease, and we pretty much treated the engineering team as if they were part of a company, just you know, working from a different location. I think the problem that sometimes arises is when entrepreneurs are thinking about you know their tech teams as you know outsourced engineers or outsourced teams. They don't treat them as if they were part of a company. We've given every single one of these engineers, you know, stock options of the company. And even though that's something which is not very common in Latin America, we felt it was important so that they would feel part of the company. So I think it's really about having that long-term commitment with them, showing them that you have that long-term commitment. Ideally, you would be on the same time zone. And I think lastly, you actually need to take time to go to those places. Um, I travel to Bogota right now once every five weeks. And you really can't go with less frequency because if you do, other then there's too much of a gap between your headquarters in the U.S. or elsewhere with your tech teams. I think it's important to have both teams in sync. So we've also brought a few of our engineers to New York. We've taken other team members to Bogota and have tried to mix both teams as much as we could. And that has worked extremely well so far. And needless to say, it's obviously way more cost effective than if you're hiring engineers in the U.S. Yeah, I think the key part to think about is thinking of them as if they just are a second office of your company, not a remote team, not an outsourced team. Because if you just do outsourcing like the traditional way, it's just not going to work very well for you most of the time. I mean, Kaya from Slidebean, who's one of our portfolio companies, he's on episode six, I believe. He talks about... The fact that they have a big team in Costa Rica, where he's from originally, and then the rest of his team is in New York. He thinks of it as if he would have a team in New York and San Francisco or New York and Chicago. No difference. It just happens to be in a different country. Absolutely. I think as a founder, you need to spend as much time nurturing and empowering your team in Latin America or wherever you have your tech team as as much time as you spend helping and empowering your local team. I think as long as you do those things, then having a remote team is a really good option. I would highly recommend doing that. So I know you've got to run in a few minutes here. So I want to just ask you a last couple questions and then we'll get you on your way for the rest of your day. So looking at what you've learned over the last few years between FJ Labs, Instacaro, doing some company building in Argentina, starting your own business. If you could go back to just before you started your first business in Argentina, just as you're graduating from university, what advice would you give yourself knowing what you know now? So the advice I would give myself and I would give anybody at that stage would be to maximize the pace of which you learn and look for environments where you can learn the fastest. And I wouldn't advise people to go to work at companies or do things just because of the brand or because of the reputation or of the salary. The only factor I would weigh in when making a professional decision in the early days, if you can afford it, is thinking about how fast you can grow and how fast you can learn. I think in life, the learnings that you have and the knowledge that you have and the connections that you have have compounding effects. So that if you learn way faster during your first five years or seven years, then that pace of learning will pay off in a big way 
couple of decades down the road. I would advise doing that. I think if you're in a setting or in a company where you don't feel you're learning, I wouldn't be afraid of just leaving that as soon as you can and start looking for something or for a company or an environment where you can learn a lot. And what places do you look for things to learn from quickly? Do you have books, blogs, podcasts that you like to listen to that help you learn fast? I think I listen to all of the cliche podcasts out there. I think obviously podcasts that Tim first has are very informative. But the way that the method I typically use, which is a little bit non-traditional, is just you know one-on-one in-person meetings. And I think people typically don't do enough of those. And people typically don't reach out to... You know, successful entrepreneurs or successful businessmen or whoever they might want to get advice from because they think that those people will never answer and they won't want to meet with them. At the end of the day, you know, what I've done is, you know, I've, I like cold emailing people. And obviously there are a few of them that don't tend to reply. But if you do that with enough people, you might find yourself having meetings with amazing people every other day. And I think when you do that, you get into really enriching conversations where you can learn a lot from these people's careers within the hour. And the same question that you just made me in terms of what I would recommend myself a few years back, you know, I would ask the same thing to them. And I would ask what was the path that they took to get where they were and whether they like it or whether they don't like it. And I've done that throughout my career and I continue doing that because I think you can always keep learning from amazing people that have accomplished, you know, great things in life. And when you're on a one-on-one setting, people tend to be very candid and tend to want to share the knowledge that they have with other people to the extent that that knowledge is helpful to them. Well, on that note, I think that's a good place to stop. Thank you again for taking the time to have this conversation with me. And where can people find you online or find out more about FJ Labs and what you're working on? So if they want to learn more about FJ, they can go directly to our website. They can also submit their company. It's fjlabs.com. If they want to get in touch with me, they can look at me on Twitter, even though I don't use it that much, or just send me an email directly to guimar at fjlabs. That's G-U-I-M-A-R at fjlabs.com. I'm happy to talk, and I'm typically pretty responsive with emails. Awesome. Well, thanks again, and definitely try to get you on again maybe a year from now after your project is taking off. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Nathan. Thanks. Have a good rest of your day. All right. Take care. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Crossing Borders with Guimar and me. I really enjoyed having this conversation. And if you did too, please think about subscribing on iTunes and Stitcher or checking out previous episodes on NathanLustig.com. 